I'll invite you to get out a Bible. We'll do hybrid. We'll do PowerPoint and Bible. All the scripture readings will be on the PowerPoint, but Matthew 18, which is what we'll cover, I'm going to read straight and I'm going to have it on the PowerPoint. So if you want to follow along there, feel free to see if you can still turn pages if you're not used to, to turning pages on a paper Bible. After I said Matthew 18, somebody said, didn't you just talk on that the other day? And actually, it's been five years. <laughs> and as the person that, that told me, I didn't tell them this, but, or asked me that, uh, I said, you know what it means when five years is the other day? That means you're getting a little bit old. And although I haven't spoken particularly on Matthew 18 in, in a number of years, I think it's something that needs to be repeated periodically, as, as a lot of things I, I say. It's not something that grows old, and it's something we need to be reminded of. There's always people getting to an age or a different stage of life where it means something different to them. And it makes you think about it differently. And the topics in Matthew 18, Jesus taught them because it was common to man. And the way that he wants us to think is against our human nature. He wants us to think a certain way. Now, that being said, Matthew 18, some parts of it may have been used in other lessons. One of the topics in Matthew 18 is pride, which I just spoke on a few months ago. And for those of you that think that's a repeat, those people that are prideful need repeats. <laughs> it's hard to get it through our thick skull. So it's not a repeat, but it kind of blends. Hugh Miller also talked on conflict resolution or conflict not too long ago. It's going to talk about that a little bit. And hopefully it'll blend all of that together in a way that each of us can make application to ourselves, And we can use it to live better with the people that we're around. And that might be our families, might be our spouse, it might be our church family or people we work with or any number of relationships. So let's, we're going to read sections of Matthew 18 and then have, have some comment and, and uh, some, some references to look at. The basic outline of Matthew 18, and I think the underlying premise of everything, is being humble. Everything we read in Matthew 18 is based on us being humble and learning to be humble. It's not natural for us most of the time. What to do and how to prevent and how dangerous it is to cause someone else to sin. What do we do when someone sins against us or causes us issues? That it's our obligation, it's not a, a maybe if you want to, but it's our obligation to seek out the weak. That when conflict, it's inevitable, when it occurs, how to properly deal with that. How to make sure that we use godly attitudes and, and uh, solve the things that come up. If you live, it's going to happen. And finally, being forgiving. And, and all these are tied together in, in a lot in how we deal with people. And I encourage you, if that's something that's hard for you, spend a lot of time in Matthew chapter 18. And again, it all revolves around trying to see yourself objectively and being humble. Humility is really the key to it all. And I'll probably say that a dozen more times because it's so important that we... we practice and teach ourselves and try to pattern after Christ and His humility when it comes to dealing with other people. So verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So his followers said, who's the greatest? We know that's the wrong question to ask, but it's the human nature question to ask. And Jesus tried to address that as he goes into these other subjects. And I think controlling our pride is the underlying premise and the foundation for all the teachings, that, a lot of teachings, but particularly in Matthew chapter 18, everything that he talks about. So he says to be converted. We've got to be converted to change or turn from our previous habits, which we use that word a lot when we talk about conversion, someone not knowing the gospel and being converted and obeying the gospel. But even for Christians that have already obeyed the gospel, and maybe even more so for us, we've still got to be converted and set our opinions or change our opinions from one to another sometimes. You know, he was talking to disciples, people just like us, people that are attempting to follow him. And, you know, here's the relationship we ought to have. Brethren, if any of you err from the truth and one convert him, change him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. It just solves a lot of problems if we help each other. If we help each other when we see people about to run into the ditch, all those different things, we want to convert people. And it doesn't end at, at baptism. In Matthew 22, Jesus prayed for Peter, maybe arguably his closest personal friend or closest relationship with someone that was one of his disciples and, and apostles. He says, I prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He wanted him, and he's going to say, I want you to be converted. And we know Peter had a problem with pride. He had to think differently than he naturally thought. The humble person is the greatest. That's what he said about the child. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to say, be like little kids and don't know anything, or be uh, immature. I mean, in other places, he uses children as an example not to be like. We need to grow up and not be children forever. But in the sense of humility, we need to be like kids. You know, kids don't know what a grudge is. <laughs> they may have a scuffle. They may fuss. But in a few minutes, they're playing together if the parents stay out of it a lot of times. We know that kids are totally reliant on their parents. And that changes as they grow older, as they get independent. But they're humble. They know sometimes the, the only thing they know is to ask for their parents. When things go wrong, when things go right, they want their parents because they rely on someone else besides themselves. And that's what God wants out of us, to not think of ourselves first, to think of other people first and think less of ourselves. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. We, we talked about this morning. God is high and holy he dwells there. We want to be like Him. We want to be pleasing to Him. And here's who He says is going to be, be with Him. Those who have a contrite and a humble spirit. A broken spirit. Someone who's not full of themselves. And I'm not going to go all the details about pride. I encourage you to, if you 
if that's something that strikes you and you weren't here uh, several months ago, it's been three, three or four months ago in October, listen to the greatest threat to the church on the podcast. It taught, well, I spent a lot of time reading scriptures about pride and the danger of pride and how it's the root of nearly every single sin and problem that we run into because we, we look for ourselves instead of God. God wants humble, contrite people to revive the humble, the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He says that helping other people is the true spirit of Christ. Whoever receives a little child, helping humble people. He just said, be like a child who's so humble. And if you receive a child, you receive him. And so we look for successful people. We want to pattern ourselves after successful people. And sometimes we look down on people that are humble and quiet and kind of blend in. But he says, that's who we need to receive. To me, it's kind of the same idea as he was talking about in Matthew chapter 25. And in summary, here's what he said in Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. It was somebody that really didn't have, in our minds, something to offer. <laughs> he wants us to receive those people and help those people. And we can't do that if we think too much of ourselves, if all we think about is ourselves, or if we put ourselves above other people. In the next section, he says it's very dangerous to offend. He says a little one. He's using the same in imagery as a child. But people that are, that are immature in Christ, people that are young in the faith, people that aren't necessarily strong in their faith, they may be old in age, we've got to be careful about offending them. 6 through 11, it says, But who... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye than, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. And despise doesn't mean hate them, but you think less of them. Don't think less of them or put them in a lowly place. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He says it'd be better if we were to die. And he uses something we're not familiar with. Maybe you've toured the Midwest. It was common. A millstone was sometimes part of a water wheel, but it was a big rock. It could be really, really big. had a water wheel on it, and it turned, and it ground up wheat. Maybe, and if you watch gangster movies or that sort of thing, maybe you would think about it. It'd be better if you were stuck in a 55-gallon drum and concrete poured in with you and you were thrown in the bottom of a lake if, than if you offend someone. That's, the, that's what he's got in his mind. If something super heavy is tied around your neck and sinks you in the ocean than if you cause somebody to sin. And, and what's the, the direction he comes out looking at it is it's, not the weak one's responsibility. It's not the, the little one's responsibility. 
It's those of us that should know better. It's our responsibility to look out for them. And, and I think sometimes we've gotten, I have personally gotten the definition of offense maybe a little skewed. You know, in our common language, to offend someone means I make them mad or personally they, they don't like, you know, uh, I, I've, I won't throw uh, Sunshine Smith, those of you that know her, you can't, I can't uh, dishonor her, but all of you that have ever grew facial hair at some point in your life, she came up to you and said, boy, that just looks awful. That offends me the way your beard looks. It's just nasty. And you'd just look a lot neater if you didn't have a beard and, or something like that. Those of us around my age and a little bit older all heard that. And, you know, that didn't cause her, my beard didn't cause her to sin or my mustache or yours or whatever she thought about that. She didn't like it. And that's what we think about. We, we need to, and I'm not saying we don't be respectful of older people, but it really doesn't mean to hurt somebody's feelings in that sense. It means to cause somebody to sin. In Scripture, it means to cause to fall or to allure into sin. And so, yes, we don't need to offend people's older peoples. We need to honor their opinions and their personal preferences about beards. I went ahead and grew mine anyway, and, and she was okay with it, and most of you did too, and I might have shaved it. I don't know. But on the other hand, when it causes someone to actually fall into sin or can lead them to sin, it's not an option anymore. I've got to watch myself and cut that out because it would be better for me to have my feet stuck in a barrel of concrete and thrown in the lake than for that to happen. And so I remember my mother at a very young age saying, somebody, some little kid, somebody's always watching you. <laughs> Not in a bad sense, but in the sense of trying to encourage me to be a good example because somebody's always watching. You never know what they're going to see. And, and that's our responsibility to each other to those that are younger, to those that are new in the congregation, to be as someone they can look up to. Not to be a perfect kind of person. I mean, we all have our flaws. But to be humble enough that we're not out trying to prove to them how good we are, but we help them and we aid them and we look out for their souls. And that's not just one person's job. It's, it's whoever has influence with them. It's all of our jobs at some point with the people that we have influence with. Romans chapter 14 spends a lot of time in talking about matters of conscience and some, what matters and what doesn't. But it, it, it kind of sums up all of that with, with Romans chapter 14 and verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. There's certain things to fight about, certain things not to. Put that aside and resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And I think he purposefully doesn't say this and this and this and this and this or stumbling blocks and don't do those. He expects us to understand and to know people well enough and to try to objectively look at ourselves well enough that we know and we are aware that we're causing someone to sin and we look out for that. And we don't have perfect vision and we can't understand everything. But when we're aware of that kind of stuff, we're a lot more apt to do good things for them as opposed to reasons to fall. But if we're proud and all we care about is how we look and what we do, we're going to miss all that if that's all we think about. So humility is still important. You know, here's an example. Pick one. You know, I'm not for smoking. Don't get me wrong. But an 18-year-old at this point, unless it's changed, I don't think it's changed to 21 yet. At 18, it's legal for somebody that's 18 to smoke. 21, is that right? Is it 21? 21, so make a 21 there. I guess you can tell I don't have kids at that age. 
and I'm not too interested in smoking or well past the age. But it's not a sin for a 21-year-old to smoke. To me, that's not tempting me or going to cause me to fall into sin if, if a 21-year-old smokes. I'm not going to smoke. It's nasty. Would be, wouldn't be necessarily sin, it would, but I don't want to. It doesn't tempt me, and it wouldn't be a sin. But what happens when the 15-year-old follows in the steps of his 18-year-old brother or cousin and breaks the law? It seems like fun and games, but guess what the 18-year-old has done? It's not a joke that they smoked out behind the barn. We've all kind of had those jokes. In the big scheme of life, it's a sin. You have just done what Matthew 18 is trying to warn us against. It'd be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and dumped in the ocean than to cause someone else to sin. Now, that's kind of minor, I guess, in the scheme of life. But that concept is what we've all got to look out for. We don't want to cause other people to sin. We want to help them, not harm them. We've got to think about them sometimes before we think about ourselves. And again, it's not necessarily natural for us to do that. It takes humility. It takes caring about other people. Again, causing the, the weakest Christian, the newest, youngest, most immature, however you want to describe a lowly person, to cause them to sin, Jesus said that's very, very serious when it all sums up. He came to save the lost people. He doesn't need us undoing what his very goal is and, and what, our, what all of our goal is. I don't think anybody, any of us would do that intentionally, but sometimes we lose sight of it, and we've got to remember that we've got to look out for those that, that are weaker than us as we might deem them. In Luke, he repeats the same thing. For the Son of Man's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he goes on now with the idea of saving the lost in verses 12 through 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine who did not go astray. Even so, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Find the sheep. That's what he says. They may not teach nursery rhymes anymore. We all remember at my age, little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying leave them alone and wait for them to come home. He puts it on us to go out and find them and help them home. I'm not a sheep person, so I'm not going to all the sheep stuff. We understand the concept. I think we all do. What man of you, he says in Luke, having 100 sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He's happy. The 99 are safe. The one is lost, and he wants everybody doesn't minimize the importance of those that aren't lost, but he wants us all to have the same care for the lost sheep, the lost person, the soul that has gone astray. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. You know, we know it's not, but he doesn't, not care for the 99 that are in the fold. He loves saved people, but they're in a good spot. 
He re the rejoicing is over the one that was lost and now is part of the fold. And he wants us to have the same mindset, the same attitude to love people like he loved people. In Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel warns the shepherds, the, the leaders, the elders of in, back in the Old Testament in the Jewish religion. They weren't doing their job. And he, he gives them a pretty, uh, pretty harsh sayings here. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you're not, you don't feed the flock. The weak you've not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that was driven away, nor sought which was lost. But with force and cruelty you've, you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field, and when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. You know, and he's particularly getting on the leaders, and leaders have a special responsibility, but, but the idea is the same for all of us. We've got to have a care beyond just being oblivious to weak people, beyond not doing them harm. It's got to be above zero or net nothing. It's got to be a real care for people, and that's where we all want to get to it. Whoever we can and where we can get the influence to have care at whatever level we find ourselves, we're going to be judged by that. Leaders, obviously, as he says here, way more harshly. But every single one of us, our commission is to seek and to save those that are lost out in the world and those that are lost maybe from the congregation. It could be us. All we like sheep have gone astray. And none of us... I don't like to think back to the times I went astray. It's not really fun. And probably most of you can think back to a time where that happened. And it's not enjoyable to think about that. But sometimes we got to think about that because it gives us empathy for those that are the lost sheep at the time. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for every one of us the one we're impatient with and used up with because they've bled us dry or they've worn out their, you know, all the stuff because they brought it on themselves. Just think of all the things I've, I've said in my head and you probably said in your head too. We've got to seek them. We need to seek them out because we have been there ourselves. You know, think of all the songs we sing, bring them in, that talk about bringing in, I'm a sheep, the 90 and 9, I, I counted, and I probably am wrong. I'm not, I didn't go through an in-depth search, but I could think of 9 or 10 songs in our songbook that, that use the imagery of seeking out and finding lost sheep. And we sing them with all the gusto. We need to make sure that's how we're living, that we really have a mindset to seek and to save those that are lost. In 15 to 22, he deals with, tells us how to deal with a brother that sins against us. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two or three more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to, 
even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you that what, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. Conflict. I think we sometimes get hung up on the word sin. And sin against God is bad. It's a sin against God. But there's a lot of ways. Sin doesn't necessarily mean a sin against God. There's a lot of ways people can violate us or break our trust or sin against us. It might or might not be sinful in and of itself. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But a relationship can get broken or scarred in a million different ways. It's unlimited. And how do we deal with that? Do we just write it off and say that's the way people are? I know families like that. They've written off their family. And I was reading about Aaron Rodgers that they hadn't talked to his family in eight or ten years. You know when that happens in the world? And that's, but you know what? It, it happens in the church. <laughs> you know people. I know people that haven't had inter, any kind of interaction with their family and they both go to church. And they just can't hardly stand to be around each other. All sorts of things start small, get big. Maybe they're big and they started big. There, you know, there's conflict of every kind in every way with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents, with other church members, with leaders, with all the stuff. How do we deal with that? Remember, my English teacher be proud. Remember the thesis statement. <laughs> Remember what the thesis statement was? Be humble. That was the first paragraph that we read be humble if we really want to deal with conflict it's not their job whoever they are the other person it's not their job to be humble guess whose job it is to be humble i gotta be humble and and it can't be said enough humility is the key if you want to have happy relationships you got to be humble Second, the, the concept is keep it as small as possible. When there's a disagreement, how big or however big or however small, keep it as small as it possibly can be. It solves a lot of problems. A lot of things can be misunderstandings. Even sometimes big things can be solved when it's one-on-one. -on -one. That's what he says, one-on-one. -on -one. Talk to each other. Communicate with each other. What I find myself... I mean, I don't like to speak for other people. What I find in myself, and, and probably other people, because they kind of react the same I really am afraid if I do that, I'm just going to make it worse. <laughs> and maybe that's the excuse you use. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's some other excuse. But there's really no excuse. When we have a conflict or a problem with somebody, we think they've done wrong, or maybe even we think we've done them wrong, keeping it small and talking to them... <laughs> It's what God says to do. It's not really optional. And, and what's funny, it makes a lot of logical sense on top of being the right thing to do. Keep it small. As individuals, it's an individual thing as long as it can be. Sometimes it can't be. And a, a concept throughout the Bible is take one or two people with you as a witness. Now, it's not legal court and all that. We all know if you've been around very long, you can get mad at your friend if you're a kid. And you can say things you really didn't mean. If you're my age, you can say things that aren't what you thought you said. Something else came in your mouth because you got your words 
I thought it, but I didn't say it. Or maybe it just doesn't come out like I meant it. There's all sorts of ways things can get tangled up or misconstrued, or I might have the wrong idea of what's really going on. Take somebody, not just anybody, take somebody that's reasonable and can help to listen to things. Someone that can listen, someone that can help sort it out. Someone that's got a good heart who understands this concept of being humble to help solve it. Not someone to, to validate my side or my point of view or to validate that uh, I'm right and they're wrong, but someone to help solve it. Because ultimately that's the goal, is to, to fix it. Not to be right or to be wrong. And, and sometimes we get caught up in, well, we can get along, but I was right. <laughs> and that's really not what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us to be humble. And in other places, sometimes he tells us we ought to take wrong over being right to save a brother. He talks about taking him to court in 1 Corinthians. But finally, sometimes it has to come to the church. But that's the last ditch ever. Not, not to be, most things ought not to be public. And I think we all understand that in concept. And, but we're afraid or but we've had bad experiences in the past. Or there's a lot of different things of why we don't keep it small and keep it as, uh, as individual as we can. Or we just do nothing. And then we end up wondering uh, how things get so far out of sorts. Because a lot of times time doesn't solve it. Time just makes people get further and further apart. And that's, that's, you know, that's not what God wants for us. That's not what he wants relationships to be like. If we're going to have the influence to seek out the lost sheep in an humble way, we've got to have influence with them. And having conflict that's not taken care of in the biblical way puts us in a spot where we can't. We don't have any way to go out and get the lost sheep. You know, it's not the context, as we've read this verse a lot of times, it's not two or three to have an assembly. It's two or three people help make things sure things are right and true. God is present in all of our relationships. And, and when we think about our family or our marriages, our extended family, God's present in those relationships as well. And sometimes we want to fix it ourselves or do what we think instead of using God for the power that He is and, and the wisdom that He's given to us to, to try and help those things. You remember those What Would Jesus Do bracelets? <laughs> Maybe that tells you how old I am because you hadn't seen those in 20 years probably or 30. But, you know, those were a reminder for us. I don't know that I ever wore them, but I saw one. And, and it, you know, a lot of times we downplay trinkets or uh, some kind of memorial type things to remind us of things. But... In some form or fashion, we need to do that and say, you know, what would Jesus have done in this? What would, in this relationship that's broken, what would he have done? <laughs> would he have walked away and said, well, that's just how they are? You know, that lost sheep isn't worth going after. Or, well, they'll change when they want to. And, you know, a lot of things are different. Some things can't be done directly. And, you know, there's a lot of times you need help because relationship been broken and there's no trust you know there's all sorts of things and we use all those for excuses but ultimately god will be with us in those relationships and repairing them when we do it do it his way you know peter i call him the teacher's pet uh, everybody's been to school and so you knew there's somebody in class that was the teacher's pet that they were always the one raising their hand first always volunteering Peter, to me, he was, he was that guy. He was always, whatever Jesus said, he was you know, going to be in all the way. And what he, let's read 15 to 22. 
Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, I'm sorry. I think I, I read that already. Sorry, sorry. Let me read 21 and 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up till seven times. Peter was trying to be the teacher's pet. And Jesus just said, be humble and forgiving and be you know, someone that takes it. And he thought, you know, I'm going above and beyond. I'm going to say what Jesus wants, plus a little more to kind of get the stroke of the teacher's pet. Seven times? You know, and just kind of think about someone who's wronged you seven times. I don't know if I can remember anybody's wronged me seven times, but maybe somebody has. After one time, I'm like, eh, no big deal, it's fine. After two times, you know, maybe whatever. Third time, patience is wearing a little thin. So Peter says, you know, seven times, that's a lot of times. I can forgive them seven times. And, and God's, or Jesus is going to say, well, that's a lot of times. That's right, Peter, that's a lot of times. Go do that. But Jesus says not, hey, seven times is good. He says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. Some translations say 77 times. Whether it's 77 or 490, it's a lot more than seven. And really what he's saying is, unlimited right we're not ever to wear out on being forgiving to people and being humble to people and we need to be able to have an attitude where we forgive people a lot of time peter the teacher's pet couldn't do that not literally four nine times you know how many ever times we're done with somebody we're gonna write them off i am i mean your patience you can be really patient but it's it's hard when they've wronged you or let you down all these times and we think two or three times, I do, that two or three times, that's a lot of times. <laughs> God says there's no partiality. Sometimes we, we're, we're more patient with some people than other people. Romans 2 and 11 says there's no partiality with God. James 2 and 1, my brethren, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with the, Father, the Lord of glory with partiality. We shouldn't be willing to forgive somebody 490 times and somebody else none. <laughs> because they've made us mad 20 years ago, or all, you know, think of all the different scenarios. God doesn't give us the option to be partial to our own family, against our own family, whatever the case might be. 23 through 35, we're going to read this whole parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king that wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, but he wasn't able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that fellow servant went out and found, out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called them, or called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Forgive your brother from your heart his trespasses. Does that sound like grudges are okay? Does it sound like, hey, it's okay to hold it over because they're really not repentant? Oh, it was really bad. Nobody can understand how bad it was. I can't forgive them. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't need to ask for forgiveness. You know, think of all the ways we lie to ourselves and justify ourselves. Grudges are destructive. <laughs> No matter how evil the wrong might be, no matter how wicked somebody, how bad somebody's treated us, no matter how right I think I might have been and I didn't do anything wrong, grudges are the scourge of the church and God hates them. There's no place to have them. You know, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. We understand the parable. doesn't need a lot of explanation. We understand we're the person that owed an amount that could not be paid. A great debt. Think of the sins that you might have done. All of them put Jesus on the cross. And think about what's been done to you. Maybe awful. It may have been years. It may have ruined a lot of things and wasted a lot of time. But no matter how bad it was, no matter how bad it was, no matter how bad it was, it doesn't give us the right to not forgive. That's what Jesus said. We can't get forgiveness ourselves, no matter how right we were, if we can't forgive. And that's what God wants for us. But we can't do that if we're lifted up with pride. And we hold a grudge. Pride is just the opposite of forgiveness. Pride says, I'm right, and they did me wrong. Humility says, I understand I'm a sinner too, and I owe just as much as they did, and I've got to forgive if I want to be forgiven. When we don't forgive, what we're saying is my, work, my hurt, what people did to me, I'm more important than anything that happened to anybody else. And that's not biblical. That's not the humility that God teaches in Matthew 18. Gandhi, I'm not big on quotes. Sometimes they make a lot of sense. The Bible makes a lot of sense, but sometimes people have good ideas. The weak, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. It takes somebody strong in their faith to be able to forgive people who have done awful things to them. But we want to be strong people. We, we want to be what God wants us to be. Our sins are great. We can't forget that, that our sins are great. No matter how good, much good we do, no matter how developed and mature we might be, no matter all the stuff that goes on, we have to remember our sins, my personal sins, put Jesus on the cross. And because of that, I don't have a right to not forgive other people. God freely forgives them. 
the offenses committed against us, and, and I'm talking about awful things. A lot of things aren't awful. But sometimes we still hold grudges. They're comparatively small to putting Jesus on the cross. That's what he's trying to get us to see. We should freely forgive them. If we don't, God's going to be angry with us. You know, they're in five simple bullet points. There's what Matthew 18, these, this parable is teaching us. Our sins are big. God forgives them. What people do to us is small compared to what we did to God. So we need to forgive them because God forgave us. If we don't, God's going to be mad. So in summary, we need to pattern ourselves after the humble. It's not something that comes natural. Pride is what comes natural. Humility does not come natural. I remember, most of y'all knew my granny, as she got older and she knew she was going to take care as she got uh, to an age where she couldn't take care of herself, I remember always telling my dad, I'm practicing to be good. <laughs> she wanted to be an old person that didn't take a lot of care, that didn't buck everything that needed to be done. And even though she didn't necessarily want to get moved here or there, she said, I'm practicing to be good. And guess what? People that are easy like that didn't just wake up easy. They practiced to be easy. And guess what? Humble people, they're just not naturally born humble. <laughs> they're naturally born as prideful as everybody else. They practiced and they worked on it. We need to pattern ourselves that way. We need to be, make sure and go above and beyond. Don't cause other people to sin. Use that as a springboard to seek the lost. Don't leave conflict, that, however little or big it is, don't leave it unresolved. Get it resolved. Otherwise, we can't seek the lost. And be forgiving if we want to be forgiven. You know, we could read Matthew 18, I could, every day, once a month. It's, it's just good for living. It's good for when, when things get on top of us and we get our lives out of sort. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you'll study it. I hope you'll take some points from it that if you've got relationships that are that are fractured that maybe they're just not as good as you want them to be that you'll use this as a springboard to to readjust your your thinking uh, said it lots of times to, to, to lots of folks the only one person i can control is me and the same is true for you you can't control what they're going to do but you can control your mind and your attitude and your humility and and i hope you will i hope you do and i hope you you uh Take this like Jesus offered it, to, to be a humble servant of his. If there's anyone here that needs the assistance of the church in some way, that uh, prayers would be helpful to you, or if you've been taught about the first principles, like to be baptized, please come forward and make that known while we stand and sing.